Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong. In episode 21, I open a channel to my friend Cecilia Leung, who is a graduate student at the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona. When she's not studying water on Mars, Cecilia enjoys cosplay as adventurous characters from her favorite sci-fi and fantasy shows. Now even though I've known Cecilia for better than two years, I actually didn't realize that she was a Star Trek fan until I saw a photo of her in her Halloween costume this year. She was dressed up in a homemade outfit as Captain Giorgio from Star Trek Discovery. And the instant that photo popped up on my newsfeed, I knew I had to get in touch. Cecilia, it's really awesome to see you again. Thanks for joining me over Subspace Communications, aka Skype. Cecilia, why don't you go ahead and, and introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's really great being able to speak with you, Mike, again. We met several years ago, so thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so I'm Cecilia Leung. Currently, I'm still a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona um, in the Department of Planetary Science. So I consider myself a planetary scientist, and mostly I study the regional circulation of water vapor on Mars. I study other types of atmospheres as well, including the atmospheric structure and atmospheric dynamics of planets, both in our solar system and in exoplanet systems. But I would say the Mars atmosphere is my primary research focus. Mm -hmm. And water circulation sounds like a really important topic. I mean, water is a really crucial molecule for so many different processes, for cloud formation, for radiative transfer, and possibly even for life, if we think that... For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Follow the water has been a big theme um, in, in the NASA scientific goals for, for a long time now. And it definitely informs what our understanding of the planet is in the past, or what it is in the current atmosphere and future landing sites would really want to understand if this is a in-situ resource that I can use. So we met two years ago, like you said, the summer of 2015, not in California, not in Arizona, but all the way in Santander, Spain, because we were both attending an astrobiology sort of boot camp, workshop, summer school thing. It, it only lasted a week, but I felt like that week was so intense and so full of information, and it even had a field trip, which was awesome. I, I learned so much in that week, and it felt like a lot longer. If I recall correctly, the astrobiology summer school was about the origins of life. And I, it was, yeah. I, I really feel like that solidified in my mind the state of the art of origin of life research and where people were at, what questions they were poking at to push the field in completely new directions. And I found it really useful and and super super interesting as well what, what do you remember from that spain uh experience i completely agree with you it was a really amazing time that we had over in spain in santander spain that was my first time over to spain and i remember our cohort 
just the different variety of backgrounds that everybody came from. Um, we had a lot of earth um, biologists, chemists, as well, as well as astrobiologists and people from the planetary and astronomy communities. And I guess in my day-to-day, -day, I interact a lot more with planetary scientists and with astronomers. And it was just the understanding and lab work that's been done for earth analogs. That was really informative. I, I love I, there's there's so many things that I learned that week that really supplemented what I've been learning in grad school. For sure. I also really enjoyed that the field trip that we went to and yeah. I, I'm going to I'm going to feel really bad. I'm I'm sort of punching myself right now that I don't remember the name of the place. I think it started with a Z. It was some beach on the northern coast of Spain. Do you remember the name? It was like Zumaria or something like that. Anyhow, it was the first time that I had ever seen the KT boundary. And for those of you who don't know what the KT boundary is, it's basically the evidence for the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. And so the classic story for the mass extinction about 65 million years ago is that a giant impactor slammed into Earth, threw up a bunch of dust, heated the earth um, tremendously and then uh, caused the earth to, to basically cool because the dust would in the atmosphere lasted for a long time and kept the the sun away from, uh, from 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 shining on the earth and the dust that eventually settled had an enrichment in iridium and it's this little tiny layer in this huge stratigraphy this huge book of the history of the earth captured in layers of sediment and there's this one layer that has a bunch of iridium which is yeah basically signifies the fact that there was some extraterrestrial material an impactor that that slammed into earth and i had never seen the kt boundary before but i saw it there in spain and it just blew my mind same here that was my first encounter with the kt boundary as well that geological park had so many different <laughs> layers it was like a history book you can go laterally along um, the different layers that records living history um, mm -hmm. all the way back to many, many millions and billions years ago. And so, yeah, that was my first encounter with the KT Boundary. I have a funny story with <laughs> another encounter with the KT Boundary. Uh -huh. So in the past couple of years, I was living in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm. and so there's another instance of the KT Boundary uh, near Trinidad. Colorado, which is in southern Colorado, very close to the New Mexico border. And a lot of geological field trips go there. And I was just passing through driving on my way between Tucson and Boulder. And I really wanted to check this out, except that I've never been there before. And it was getting dark. Uh oh. <laughs> so it wasn't near the side of the highway or anything. It was in Trinidad State Park. And so I had to drive several several tens of miles off of the main highway. It's not super far, but at least 30 minutes from the main interstate corridor. And it was getting dark. And I thought, all right, I have a flashlight. Perhaps I can find this. <laughs> <laughs> it was twilight by the time I got to the trailhead. And I was walking the only one mile in to see a good spot for where people say that you can see the KT boundary. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, by that point, it was really, really dark. And with my flashlight, I actually couldn't find it. Oh, no. And I was kind of bummed out. I'm like, oh, well, I drove an extra 
45 minutes to come and wasn't able to see it. So two years after that encounter, I would just happen to be in the area again, but this time in the mid-afternoon. And so this was much easier to find <laughs> that time. And it was right there, this this layer, the, the layer of white that you can see fairly clearly was right there. And you can see it very clear in the daylight. But I do think that my first time seeing it in Spain, that was spectacular. And I would just really recommend anybody who really wants to go see it, either see it at the site in Spain or if you want it somewhere closer to home, the one in Colorado was really spectacular also. I love that you brought up that story because it shows that, hey, you can actually go find the KT boundary all over the world. And that's one of the <laughs> leading lines of evidence that this was a massive impact that spread so much extraterrestrial material everywhere on the globe. And you can see it in Spain and you can see it in the United States, if you like, if you go to the right place where it's exposed. Awesome. That's right. Well, let's talk about Star Trek now, because this is okay. a science and Star Trek podcast. So, Cecilia, what is your history with Star Trek? How much of it have you seen? So, Star Trek is a large franchise, and I'm definitely a Star Trek fan. I wouldn't say that I know every single episode oh, of do all I. the different series. <laughs> <laughs> Back to fact, I do have friends that that do so um kudos to them <laughs> I, I would say i'm a fan and my first encounter was in high school okay and when i started becoming a fairly big fan of just sci-fi and fantasy genres and so that was my first encounter and i'm really glad that they're doing a revived series this fall mm -hmm. uh star trek discovery and it just really brings me back to my first encounter with the with the franchise and how much I love the discovery part of uh, understanding science and technology behind the movies and the TV shows. Yeah. Do you remember what episode or series you had your first encounter with Star Trek with? I started with the original because at oh. that point, <laughs> I was at a friend's place mm -hmm. and he was a, quite a big fan and we were just watching with a group of friends and i i don't i don't remember which episode but i just remember <laughs> the the much older 60s type of um tv yeah. <laughs> storytelling <laughs> that style it's a completely different style and now discovery is also a completely different style mm -hmm. um and so the main reason why i was prompted to ask if we could have this skype call was because i saw pictures online of your halloween costume which was <laughs> absolutely brilliant cecilia do you want to tell the listeners who you dressed up as for halloween I would love to. So for this past Halloween, picking a Halloween costume was really easy. I was Captain Philippa Giorgio from this latest new series. Mm -hmm. And Captain Giorgio is of Asian descent and played by Michelle Yeoh. And it, it was just so easy because it's been a really long time since popular television has really portrayed a, a really strong female character that I could really relate to. Walk me through what it felt like to first receive the news that Michelle Yeoh was going to play somebody on Star Trek and then finding out that, oh my goodness, she's going to be the captain. And then 
anticipating that and then finally watching Star Trek Discovery and seeing her presence on the bridge of the Shenzhou and seeing how she interacted with her officers as their captain. What did, what did all that feel like to you? What did that mean to you? <laughs> well, I was really excited, first of all, just knowing that Star Trek was making a new series to begin with. Uh-huh. And so my first encounter with some of the teasers and the trailers and seeing two very strong female leads, um, two women of color to be represented in that opening scene of them being in the desert, trying to figure out their communication system. Yeah. And that, that was really, really inspirational. And just those two women, when, when I was finally watching the first two episodes during the premiere, it was, it was great seeing the women interact because that sort of exemplifies the type of interactions between really strong female leads that is fairly absent from a lot of mainstream television. The way they, there's some bantering obviously, but each of them are holding to their own very strong virtues and values. And of course, this is just everyday life for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just great seeing it on screen being portrayed that way. And at the end of episode two, unfortunately, spoiler alert, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody listening to this podcast knows already that unfortunately, Captain Giorgio doesn't make it. And I was super sad because oh. I was looking forward to having Captain Giorgio around for the entire, you know, Star Trek Discovery run, even if, because I knew that eventually Michael Burnham needs to leave the Shenzhou and join the crew of the Discovery, but I thought, oh, maybe that old ship will still be around and she'll pop up every once in a while and they'll cross paths in the cosmos once or twice a season and (laughs) we'd get more Captain Giorgio, but unfortunately that didn't happen and I was super sad. What what did you think about that? I was pretty shocked as well. (laughs) I think I was a little bit prepared just seeing some of the credits of who are the main cast, who are the main characters. We see her name, but we don't see her name in the long-term cast of main characters. So I was slightly prepared that, all right, she is the captain of the USS Shenzhou. And then obviously this whole series is focused on the USS Discovery. And so it's just a real shock when it actually happened. But also at the same time, her tenure on the show was still really great to watch and just seeing both Giorgio and Burnham really ex- exert their influences in those two short episodes was was was, a, was really representative um, and really great for representing a diverse cast. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully, I think there are some flashbacks as well. So I don't think this is the last time Episode two was definitely not the last time we got to see Captain Giorgio. And Michael Burnham is definitely working through a lot of emotions and a lot of things that her relationship with her captain was a really strong relationship developed over many years. And so obviously she's still working through a lot of what happened during her time on the Shinjo. And mm-hmm. so I, I think there's going to be some flashbacks that we're going to see Captain Giorgio again. I certainly hope so. So, Cecilia, besides Captain Giorgio, what would you say is your favorite part about Star Trek Discovery so far? I would say that the character development in this newest series is really interesting. I think in the past, we we see a lot more of 
the crew on the bridge going on a mission, going to discover things. And I love that part of it. That was what got me hooked into astronomy and planetary science in the first place. But I think in this newest rendition of the series, there's a lot more background of what the characters are, um, understanding personally what they're going through. And just the character development is a big draw for this new generation. I totally agree. I feel like in the past on Star Trek, you got a certain character and right away you knew basically how that character works and what makes that character tick. And they don't really change too much from episode to episode. They encounter new scenarios and make new discoveries and they have to react differently to those. But the characters themselves, we don't really discover too much more about their backstory and how they might change. Now, there's some exceptions in Star Trek, I would say like the doctor on Voyager has a has a nice character arc where he continually adds subroutines to his program and, and evolves and changes and grows. Seven of Nine as well. But take any random character, like maybe Chekhov or something. Chekhov doesn't change very much from the first time we see Chekhov to the last time we see Chekhov. Or or even Sulu or or Captain Kirk for that matter. Captain Kirk is just Captain Kirk. Everybody knows who Captain Kirk is. But I feel like we are still discovering the characters in discovery we're still learning their backstories and we're anticipating them to to change in the future like like tilly you know she has these grand aspirations as a cadet about that she's going to be captain one day and i can't wait to see that over the course of the next few years like tilly progressing and learning and growing and maturing as a starfleet officer and then there's like captain lorca right what's up with this guy every single time we see him it's like oh he just gets more and more shady and more and more like nefarious and i'm just i'm I'm worried about this guy yeah so i completely agree with the the characters on discovery and and the amazing journey that we're on with them okay let's talk about the uniform that you made by hand from scratch it just looked absolutely amazing and I haven't interviewed anybody who has done real cosplaying on this podcast yet, at least that I know of. But when I saw this picture of you on social media, I was like, wow, she looks exactly like Captain Giorgio. And you did a great job. So just walk me through from the very beginning when you had the idea, I'm going to be Captain Giorgio for Halloween, all the way into Halloween. How long did that take? How did you get the materials? How did you put it all together? I'm just so curious. Sure. So, so Halloween, end of October, I started thinking about it near the end of September. Uh, how do I put a costume together? And so I first went online, <laughs> look at what's available. And, you know, at that point, there weren't a lot of full Star Trek Discovery uniforms that are online at that point that was cost-effective. Mm-hmm. There are some a couple hundred dollars one I'm like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna try to be more economical about it. Yeah, so I ended up just looking for Materials online or at the local craft stores that I can piece together myself I think the most challenging part was looking at the sides of their uniform. They're little insignias yeah. and that Originally, I thought, okay, maybe I'll use fabric paint. But when I tried it on a normal piece of blue, navy blue cloth, it didn't turn out quite well. And so I needed a little bit of a better, higher quality solution. And I was able to find a shirt that had that insignia already just off eBay. So I started off with a long sleeve shirt that has this insignia on 
the two sides and then I put on felt patches and gold ribbon and then obviously topped it with fabric paint as well. So one of the things I realized through that process was that I don't own a glue gun. (laughs) 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 I could have gotten glue gun, but I had already gone down the path of sewing all the ribbon onto the uniform and that stayed on much better. I wasn't worried about it falling apart halfway through the day. And so I plan on using it again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) perhaps at Comic-Con or another event. So how much experience do you have putting together costumes from scratch. Was this your first time or have you done things in the past? So during my time in Boulder, we were actually quite involved um, with the Denver Comic Con. There's actually a big educational component to that. And my colleagues at the Southwest Research Institute was partnering with the Comic Con organizers to give science presentation to just inform the public, a sci-fi, interested audience on the science and technology behind some of the most popular series. So I got a chance to be involved with that in this past year. Sometimes I just go with my normal planetary science operations shirts from Mm -hmm. space missions. But some of my colleagues have dressed up with uniforms from Star Trek. And this year I had part of a uniform from Wonder Women, but I, there were much better ones that I saw at Comic-Con that I would aspire to doing myself. So I don't have a whole lot of experience, I would say, but it's definitely really fun. And if I had more time, I would spend more time doing it. That is so cool because that kind of program is basically exactly the same intention as this podcast, which is to share the wonders of science with people who are interested in science fiction and in Star Trek. Wow, that's so cool. I'm, I'm very heartwarmed that that kind of program exists at the Denver Comic Con. And I need to go and, and look and see if there's something similar at the San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, I've never actually been to Comic Con. I've been to many Star Trek conventions. And I sort of was at Comic Con last summer for the Star Trek Beyond premiere which was at comic-con but it was sort of a separate thing and that you could get tickets just to the star trek premiere and that's what i did but i didn't attend the the rest of comic-con hey maybe maybe can you can you get me a ticket to the denver comic-con next year (laughs) no you're willing to share some of the science and give one of the public talks i'm sure i can hook you up i would love to do that oh my gosh that would be a dream come true anyhow so back to the uniform uh what was your favorite part about putting together this uniform The whole thing was really fun. One of the funnest part was walking in to school, to the university on Halloween. Uh And some of us were dressed up and just, you know, I think I got really positive reaction from my fellow grad students and other staff in the department. And I, that's kind of how I know I sort of may have done a good job. (laughs) Do people come up to you and uh, ask for selfies? I imagine that you got at least a dozen requests for selfies uh, with with you. Uh, We took some pictures, no selfies though. I was pretty overwhelmed with the positive reaction on social media. I got retweeted by the official Star Trek Twitter account. Way to go. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Um, And that was was the the first time I was liked and retweeted that many times. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of Twitter, um, where can people find you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is Celestial Cess. C-E-L-E-S-T-I-L. And then Cess is my nickname, C-E-S-S. Awesome. 
Anything else you want to tell us about the creation of this marvelous Halloween costume? I think for me, one of the hardest things for me to portray Captain Giorgio during some of the pictures that a friend was taking for me was to replicate her her demeanor and her look. I tend to smile a lot and having more of a serious face was actually challenging. But it really gave me a chance to get into her head, into her character, what it's like to feel that type of portrayal of somebody in a position of power and exemplifying that was really powerful, I think. That's wonderful. It was wonderful. really fun to do. So you're writing up your thesis right now for your PhD. So maybe we should just end on on that note, because I know your head is swimming <laughs> with, with <laughs> science. Can you just give us a very brief rundown of what your thesis is all about? Sure. My thesis is looking at the regional transport of water vapor on Mars. And so the Martian atmosphere is quite thin, actually, compared to Earth. It's less than 1% of the pressure that we have on Earth. And even in that thin atmosphere, we have some amount of water vapor, not a whole lot. But then this water vapor is really important because of the different reservoirs of water on Mars. You can think of it as the ice that is in the polar ice caps. You can think of maybe some subsurface sources. And also you have water in the atmosphere. The atmosphere water, you can think of it as a conduit that brings water from the various sources and just redistributed across the planet. Looking at a global circulation of it is important. And, and especially for myself and my, my thesis, I'm looking at the regional circulation of it. Um, are there particular pockets of Mars that has chances of having sources of sinks? And those are important places uh, for future exploration sites. So I look at the Valles Marineris as well as Tharsis regions of Mars a lot. And that is the region of Mars where we have the giant volcanoes and big canyon systems. And that's a region of very high topography. And so I'm talking about the regional circulation with winds and with other chemical species. The circulation in the regional sense is really affected by the local topography. And so when you have really high mountains and really low valleys, that's going to force the winds and these different chemical species to flow in ways that is going to be forced by the slopes and by the diurnal variations that these slopes cause. Diurnal and meaning the day-night? the day-to-day, day-night, and different times of day variations. Got it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and so one interesting thing that we found is that potentially there could be water ice fogs on Mars. Some publications in the past have suggested that they exist, and Unfortunately, a lot of the orbiters on Mars observe in the middle of the day at 3 p.m. And water ice fogs are most expected during the early morning hours, like 6 a.m. And so that's where the modeling efforts really help to interpret um, these potential fog phenomena. And what we found is that actually there can be low-lying clouds but the dust also plays a big role in what we're observing from orbit. And so within these canyons, we're getting these mixtures, these layers of clouds and dust that some people have been trying to interpret them as fog. And there can still be water ice clouds, but then they have a really different structure than what we've come to know as fogs on Earth. 
One other major problem um, that I've been trying to understand is the atmospheric contribution to these active slope lineae called recurring slope lineae on Mars. And these are active flows that changes from season to season, and they're known to be active during certain times of the year. And a lot of people think that a volatile, so a liquid, may be involved in why they're active and flowing on Mars. And a big project of mine is to understand how might the atmospheric water um, contribute to their activity. So how might the atmospheric water, I mean, the, the, so the water's in the atmosphere, and you need to, I guess, get it onto the ground so that you can get this brief running stream of water going down the slope. What is the process by which you get the water out of the atmosphere and to basically condense on the ground? Yeah. Again, our current instruments that are in orbit or even the ground instruments don't have give us a huge amount of data about relative humidity or the amount of water that is nearest to the ground levels. And so we're talking about a few meters off the ground. We don't even have great near surface atmospheric temperatures of the ground in these key sites either. And so those are the two key constraints in terms of how much water and what is the temperature in the near surface for the subsurface and the near surface layers to interact to the to basically is it possible to suck this vapor out of the atmosphere onto the ground and in the opposite sense what is the diffusion from the ground into the atmosphere and so that two-way exchange is really important to understand and we're trying to do that with some numerical models very cool you know maybe in one of the future episodes of Star Trek Discovery, they will venture to Mars and we'll get to see what Mars looks like in the 23rd century. If you had to guess, how would Mars be both similar and different 200 years or so from now? Oh, this is a really good question. So I think there's been a lot of human interest of bringing human presence onto the red planet. That is more than just the NASA and other government space agency. We're starting to see a shift towards privatized companies such as SpaceX looking for opportunities to land humans on Mars. And so I think in the next 50 years or so, we're going to have be able to get a good presence of perhaps some of the first robots that are going to set up a permanent base. And shortly after that, hopefully, humans will be able to follow on and be able to establish a more permanent presence on Mars. And so hopefully in 200 years, we're going to be able to have research stations that are permanently on Mars and a good communication system for us to be an interplanetary species. That would be a huge step for humanity and also for science to have people actually watching these processes of water vapor and water condensation happen throughout the day on Mars. That would be a huge boost for our understanding of exactly what you were talking about in your thesis. So hopefully that comes to pass sometime in our lifetime so that you know if you're 100% uh, right on, on your thesis, which I'm sure I'm sure you are. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. I had a great time chatting with you. I think this is good. Thanks so much, Cecilia. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast, Mike. Yeah, of course. Talk was, to you soon. It was a wonderful conversation. Bye. Bye. That concludes episode 21 
of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cecilia Leung about her Captain Giorgio costume and her thesis research on water in Mars's atmosphere. The place in Spain where we saw the KT boundary that I couldn't quite remember the name of was the Playa de Itzurun in Zumaya, Spain. If you ever find yourself on the northern coast of Spain, I highly recommend you check out this beach at low tide when you can walk along the base of the cliffs and see the pages of Earth's history recorded in layers of sediment that have been tilted almost vertically. I'll be back soon with an episode recorded at the Habitable Worlds Conference in Laramie, Wyoming. Until then, see you out.